Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Father Trevor. In Luke 11, Jesus is accused of casting out demons by a power other than God. He says this in reply, and if I cast out demons, it is by the finger of God, and then you will know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. He tells a parable. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. When someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, the strong man in this parable, in this story Jesus tells, is the devil. It's the enemy. And the spoils, that's us. We are the goods that the enemy has taken and locked away in his house and guarded. But Jesus, Jesus says that he is the stronger man. He is the one who has come to attack the enemy who has come to remove the armor that the enemy thinks will keep him safe and to take back the spoils. Jesus is talking about himself and what he came to do on the cross, that he is the stronger man. He's come to set his people free, to set the captives free. He looks at sin at death, at the devil, and he hates it. He hates the enemy of his children and of his creation. He hates anyone that would attack the one he loves. And so he comes to attack the enemy. Out of his goodness and love, he goes to war on the enemy that wages war on us. From the beginning of scripture, we see the outline of this battle. In the Garden of Eden, in the very first book of scripture in Genesis 3, we see the devil come against God's creation and God makes a prophecy. He says that the offspring of Eve, Jesus, will bruise the serpent's head. Jesus will defeat evil. When Jesus is born, evil comes to oppose him at every turn. At his very birth, King Herod commits genocide to try to kill Jesus, as the enemy has always relished in the spilling of innocent blood. When Jesus begins his ministry with 40 days in the wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus to turn away from the mission of God, as the enemy tempts all of us to turn from the kingdom of God. When Jesus tells his followers he must go to the cross, 
Peter opposes him and says, no, do not go to the cross. Do not go to battle. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And when Judas betrays Jesus to death, we read it's because Satan entered into him. Conflict is prophesied of in the garden. It's begun in Jesus's ministry where he casts out demons, turns back sickness, reverses death. And it is here on the cross on Good Friday that the battle is won. Jesus is a stronger man. He is the king who overcomes. The sign above Jesus' head on the cross said, King of the Jews, the religious leaders say he claimed to be king of the Jews. But what was intended as mockery instead is prophecy. Instead is reality. It's on the cross that Jesus is the stronger man. It's on the cross that Jesus comes attacking, overcoming, and defeating the enemy. Bonnie and I last fall watched the Netflix series, The Crown. It's all about Queen Elizabeth moving towards her coronation in the 1950s. You see all of the buildup, all of the movement toward this pivotal moment when she's crowned as, as queen. You see the ceremony and the planning of the procession to the place where it will happen. She's given a royal robe, centuries old. And then at the center is the crowning moment, literally. She wears the crown and ascends to her throne. And in the gospel passage from John that Casey just ministered to us, we see Jesus in procession to the cross, a procession that is complete humiliation. He's robed in purple, but beaten, fulfilling Isaiah 53. He was beaten, he was bruised, he was mocked, he was scorned. He's crowned, but with thorns and bloodied. He's processed in front of the people carrying his cross. He's presented as king, but in humiliation. But in the wisdom of God, in the foolishness of the cross, this procession of humiliation is actually his enthronement as king. Because on the cross, the victim becomes the victor. Colossians 2 says that Jesus on the cross disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by his cross. That's not what it looks like at first, but he turns his own disarming, his own public humiliation, his own procession into his enemy's humiliation, into his enemy's disarming, and into his triumph. The one who was slain is the one who will reign. And it's when Jesus is lifted up onto the cross that we see him in all of his glory. Jesus is born for this battle. It is why he has come. And by the finger of God, he casts out the devil and all the devil's works from his temporary power. In a moment, we'll sing the sixth century hymn. Sing my tongue the glorious battle. Of the mighty conflict, sing. 
Tell the triumph of the victim to his cross thy tribute bring. Jesus Christ, the world's redeemer, from that cross now reigns as king. In the cross, Jesus is victorious. Jesus wins the victory. If he's fighting a battle, who is his enemy? There's a book written a while ago called Christus Victor by a theologian named Gustav Aulen. Christus Victor, Christ the victor, or Jesus wins, as I like to think about it. He said, the work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage, sin, death, and the devil. So what does the victory of Jesus in his cross mean? It means that because Jesus is victorious over sin, death, and the devil, so are we. Because Jesus has won a victory over sin, death, and the devil, we can enter into that victory. And we can have victory over sin, death, and the devil. Romans 6 teaches us what that means. So would you turn in your scriptures to Romans 6? If you're looking in the Bibles that are on your seats, it's page 1436 if you can see it in the dark. First, victory over sin. The Apostle Paul's teaching us what that means, what it means that Jesus saves us from our sin. And if you look in verse 6, he says that, our old self was crucified in him, that the body of sin would be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, that we would be set free from sin. Later on the passage in verse 12, look there. Let not sin therefore reign. It's a king who reigns. Let not sin therefore reign to make you obey its passions. And then in verse 13, Sin will have no dominion over you. Another word about a king, dominion. What's he saying? He's, he's actually kind of bringing back a story that all the readers would know. It's a story from the people of Israel that they used to be slaves. God's children, the people of Israel, were slaves in Egypt. And God heard their cry and he heard their misery and he brought them up out of Egypt He sent a deliverer, Moses, to come and set them free from slavery and lead them to the land that he had promised them. Paul is using that language because we are slaves to sin. Sin is a king that rules in our lives. And we cannot save ourselves from sin. We need delivered. Do you know that we are not more powerful than sin? You are not stronger than sin. Sin is an enemy you can't defeat. It wants to make you obey, and it will. It will control you. It will make you its slave. You are dead in your sins. 
Have you ever gone into a batting cage? I did this as a kid, a 12-year-old. You go into the 60-mile-an-hour batting cage. That's how fast people were pitching when you were 12. And you do okay, but then next door, that's the 80-mile-an-hour one. And you go in there, and you don't do as well. Imagine tonight, you step into the batter's box against the Chicago Cubs' new closer, Wade Davis. Last year in 162 games, opponents, the very best Major League Baseball players in the world, had 33 hits. In 162 games, 33 hits. Imagine you or I step into the box against Wade Davis and we say, he struck me out a thousand times, but this time I'm going to get a hit. No, you're not. He is stronger than you. It's like when you go to McDonald's and you've said, you're never going to go there again. And you pull up to the drive-thru and they say, welcome back. Sin is stronger than you. We are slaves to sin. I want you to imagine with me this biblical image of what sin is. You are a captive to sin. There are chains that are wrapped around you. There are weights attached to the chains. Not just one, not just two. You're wrapped like a mummy in chains. And you get used to kind of shuffling around in them. You get used to what you feel like. You've never not had chains. You kind of even forget that they're there. And yeah, sometimes it's inconvenient to walk around covered in chains. And there are times when it can feel overwhelming, but most of the time you've learned to function in your chains. About five or six years ago, I was meeting with a guy who was smoking a lot of marijuana. And he told me the First thing he said, first time we got together is, it's not negatively impacting my life. He didn't think it was physically hurting him despite all the research to the contrary. He didn't care that it was breaking the law. Why should the government be able to tell him what to do? But as we met together regularly over the next month, he started to tell me stories. He told me about how he'd been smoking weed since he was a young teenager. Now in his 30s, he'd been high more years than he'd been not. He dropped out of school. He'd lost his last two jobs. And now his wife wanted him to quit. He wanted to. He wanted to be a good husband. Why does she want you to quit now, I asked. And he said, well, a few weeks ago, I was home watching my young children, and he didn't have any marijuana to smoke, and he really wanted it. So he put him in the car, and he drove to meet his dealer, and they did the deal with the kids in the car. And his wife was horrified. Are they going to grow up to be addicted to marijuana? What if the police had busted up that? Would we have lost our kids? It's like the joke my father-in-law says, did you hear about the guy who was addicted to brake fluid? He says he can stop whenever he wants. (laughs) We obey sin. That's what Paul says. We obey sin. And this young man who became a friend, he was a slave to sin. It was ruling his life. He'd never known what it meant to be a free man. And as we 
started to come around him and he made the decision to get clean and he started to come out from under the rule of sin in his life, it was shocking for him. It was like he was waking up for the first time. I remember sitting with him on the couch across from me and he's weeping and he's saying, I- I'm, a, I'm an angry person. I-, I don't know how to interact with people. My entire emotional life has been stunted by this addiction. It's been controlling me. And, and, and now all of a sudden I'm waking up to who I am for the first time and it's hard and it's scary. I know with addiction, there are ways in which you choose it and there are ways in which you have no control over it. That's why I told this story because it's actually our relationship with sin. There's ways in which we choose it and there's ways in which we have no control over it. We're all slaves to it. And a lot of times we don't even know it. We don't know how deeply it rules in our lives. Sometimes other people have put their chains on us. Sometimes our society, our family, other things have put chains on us. And we also put on the chains. He told me, I know it was my addiction that did this to me, but still when life is hard and when I'm hurting, that's what I want to go to. I know it hurt me, but that's what I want. It's like, it's like he has a chain on and he takes the chain off, but then he goes, oh, no, 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 I need that back. I don't know what it's like without it. That's my comforter. That's what keeps me safe. Maybe you have an addiction in your life. Maybe it's not an addiction level, but maybe it's this pattern of sin. Maybe you cope with the world and with the pain you feel by holding on to chains of dysfunction. Maybe those were handed down to you by a previous generation of your family. Maybe you, maybe you were sinned against, and now you have those chains to carry. We're all born chained to sin. We're chained to our selfishness, our pride, our lust, our anger, our greed, our envy of other people's life, our need for success and approval. We're chained to treating our bodies in ways that relieve our anxiety of hurting ourselves or hurting others with our words or with our actions or with our thoughts. We're slaves in ways we don't even know, in ways we're not ready to admit, but we all have the chains of sin wrapped around us. And throughout this letter to the Romans, Paul's describing what it means to be under the chains of sin. But you know what? That's not what chapter six is about. Chapter six is about being set free from sin by the death of Jesus. Verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the ones you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, past tense, you who were once slaves to sin have become slaves to righteousness. Because of the cross of Jesus, we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. On the cross of Jesus, Jesus takes upon himself sin. Jesus, the sinless one, becomes sin for us. He battles sin, he attacks it, he defeats it on the cross. And his victory over sin, he gives to us. How does he give his victory over sin to us? Because we, in our baptism, can be united to his death. 
we can actually enter into his death and die to sin so that we can enter into his resurrection and be alive to God. That's what he's talking about in verses three to five. Don't you know? Don't you know that you've been baptized into Christ Jesus? You were baptized into his death. You were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When Jesus died on the cross, he gave us a way to die to sin. He not only breaks the power of sin in our lives, he breaks the chains of sin. He's not only forgiving us, You're not only forgiven for your chains, he breaks their power. You don't have to obey them anymore. You're forgiven, but you're also set free. Slavery can be your past, but slavery is not your future. Jesus wins victory for us over sin. He wins victory for us over death. We just read in verse 16, disobedience, slavery to sin leads to death. Paul says it again in verse 23. The wages of sin is death. Wages, that's that's an accounting word. When you add it all up, sin leads to death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, we have trouble believing everything the Bible says is a sin, is a sin, don't we? We could talk through all the ways the Bible says we sin and rebel against God and which ones are okay to call sin in our culture, which ones are not okay to call sin in our culture. But if we have trouble believing what the Bible says is sin, is sin, and it is, we really have trouble believing that sin leads to death. But the Bible teaches us that the sin we see all around us, whether it's the decay of our bodies, disease, natural disaster, war, famine, murder, It's not the result of where we are in our evolutionary progress as a species. It's the result of our sin. Because we have gone astray, because we have gone our own way instead of God's way, we have chosen a way. And God has let us in our free will walk in that way. And that way is a way of sin that leads to death. That is the teaching of the Bible. God teaches us that we are in chains. And as much as we say that this chain isn't a sin and this chain won't lead to death, they are and they will. This is why the church cares so much about teaching what the Bible says is a sin. Because it's a life and death issue. It's a life and death and a life after-death reality. The Bible teaches us sin out of compassion and out of the love of God for us. 
because sin leads to death, but Jesus's death leads to life. In God, out of his great love for us, he rescues us from the way of death and he rescues us from the result of sin by dying on the cross and taking our sins upon himself. He defeats sin and he defeats death. Listen to what Paul says in the chapter before in Romans 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. While we are still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we're still sinners, while we're still in our chains, Christ dies for us. We have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him. We were enemies, but we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now that we're reconciled, we will be saved by his life. Sin leads to death, but Jesus' death leads to life. While we were in chains saying, this isn't a sin, that isn't going to kill me, Jesus comes to us and lets himself be chained in our sins. He puts himself in our stead and and he dies so that we can be set free from those chains and from the result of those chains, which is death. With the weight of the chains of the world on his shoulders, he dies so we can live. For all the death, he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That life in God to Christ is a spiritual life, but thanks be to God, it is a physical life too. You know, we don't talk about life after death much. There's a saying that says that the ancients talked about death but not sex, and we moderns talk about sex but not death. The church actually talks about both. I read an article in the New York Times in March um, by a woman named Amy Krauss Rosenthal, who uh, shortly after writing the article, died. And she wrote it knowing she was about to die. It's called, You May Want to Marry My Husband. Maybe you've read it. It's hard to read. We're not used to reading about death. I want to read you the first paragraph. I've been trying to write this for a while, but the morphine and lack of juicy cheeseburgers... What has it been now, five weeks without real food? Have drained my energy and interfered with whatever prose prowess remains. Additionally, the intermittent micro naps that keep whisking me away mid-sentence are clearly not propelling my work forward as quickly as I was like, but they are admittedly a bit of trippy fun. Still, I have to stick with it because I'm facing a deadline. In this case, a pressing one. I need to say this and say it right while I, A, have your attention, and B, a pulse. She writes the article to say how much she loves her husband and how she hopes her husband will find happiness and find someone after she dies. Death is real, and it is our mortal enemy. It is the enemy of God's creation. 
And when we think about what happens after death, which we don't do very often, on one hand, we're skeptical. We can't really know, so let's not think about it. And on the other hand, we're utterly sentimental. It'll be okay. Gone to a better place. And we're even sentimental about our skepticism. So we talk about our molecules being released back into the universe. That answer would never suffice for almost every other area of our life. Where are you going on vacation? Who's to say? How can you really know? What's your business plan for the next three to five years? We'll see what happens. It'll be a better place. We'll research for hours about what preschool to send our kid to, whether or not our diet should include gluten, what a certain celebrity tweeted about another celebrity. We don't often think about our deaths, but other cultures do. They think about what happens to our bodies when they die. They think about whether a part of us lives on, whether we have something eternal in us, which almost every other culture other than our Western culture believes. They think about where we go when we die. Think about how the living and the dead interact. Think about what happens at the end of time. And the Jewish culture thought about this. And Jesus thought and taught about this. And they had this idea of the place where you would go when people die, to a place of the dead. And at the end of time, that there would be a judgment, a judgment where God judged evil and, and set things right. That the children of God would be resurrected with God forever in a world without sin, death, and the devil. That the world doesn't end with an apocalyptic bang, or as T.S. Eliot once said, not with a bang, but with a whimper, but that the world ends with God setting it right. Because of sin, death, and the devil has a grip on people. And it has a grip on us in our death, that in our death, death would hold us captive. And so when the writers of scripture talk about Jesus's death, and when the church in the early days talked about Jesus's death, they talked about it in fantastical and, and mythical and otherworldly ways, because it is about another world. It's about the spiritual world and the world to come. And they said on the cross, Jesus wins a victory over that world. That throughout scripture, it's the devil who has tempted us away from God to sin for our death. That the devil's purpose is to corrupt the good that God made. That wherever you see death and a culture of death and the weapons of death, you see the work of the devil. Some of the early church writers talked about Jesus's death as this subversive attack on the devil. That Satan was trying to turn God against humanity. But instead of being angry at humanity, God takes his anger and he puts it on the devil and he puts it on death and he puts it on sin. That he will forgive people in order to defeat the serpent. Satan in the cross 
thinks he has won. He thinks that he has defeated Jesus. Jesus is dead, but Jesus enters the realm of the dead, and Jesus cannot be held captive. The devil realizes in horror that he can hold sinners, but Jesus has not sinned. Jesus cannot be held dominion by death. But Jesus also paid for our sin. And so now the devil cannot hold us captive either. Death has no hold on him. And instead of taking Jesus captive, Jesus takes death captive. Listen to what Jesus himself says in the book of Revelation. He says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and I hold the keys to death. Peter talks about Jesus descending to the dead and making all the powers submit to his rule. We don't know everything that happened when Jesus died in those days that he was in the tomb, but we know this. When Jesus was dead, he was still in charge. And when he went to the grave, he went to the grave with dominion and with power. That even dead, he was more powerful than death. And then, because he's defeated death, he is raised to life. Sometimes we think about the cross as defeat and resurrection as victory. No, on the cross, Jesus wins the victory over death and therefore must naturally be raised again because death cannot hold him. The resurrection is the sign. It is the proof of Jesus's victory. It is the affirmation of our freedom. And now anyone who believes in Jesus and enters into his death cannot be held captive by sin. Sin, death, and the devil could not hold Jesus. They cannot hold us either. Because of the cross, when we die in Jesus, we go not into prison, but into the presence of God. And so our prayer book says to your faithful people, in death, life is changed, not ended. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's possession. We are his spoils. He has set us free and he owns us. Happy from now on are those who die in the Lord. Because death doesn't take us captive. Death brings us to Jesus. Told that story about the people of Israel and their exodus out from Egypt. In that story, Moses comes to the people who are afraid that the Egyptian army is going to take them over. And he says to them, Don't be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. Don't be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. And it is in his cross that he fights for us. It's in his cross that we see both his love for us and his power. He told his followers before he went to his death that when you've lifted me up, then you'll see me. We lift up Jesus on the cross tonight and we see his victory won for us. Jesus has won victory over sin, death, and the devil. And because of 
his victory. We can have victory over sin, over death, and the devil. What does that victory look like in our life? Why do we still experience the effects of sin and death and the devil? John Stott, who's an English pastor, he said that it's not that they've ceased to exist, but that their power has been broken. They have not yet been abolished, but they are overthrown. They're not eliminated, but they have been, can be, and will be overcome. We talked about those different stages of this battle that it was foretold in the garden. It was begun in Jesus' ministry. It was won on the cross. It was affirmed in the resurrection. Now the conflict is extended in the mission of the church, that all people may have the opportunity to hear about the victory of Jesus on the cross over sin, death, and the devil. We as a church are in a battle. We do battle with the spiritual weapons of the armor of God. And every conversion, every person who is baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection, every conversion is a confrontation with sin, death, and the devil. That's why when we baptize someone, we do an exorcism. We banish the work and of the enemy in the name of Jesus because it no longer has any claim. When we come and engage with the devil because he is prowling around seeking whom he may devour, we remember that his power has been broken. He may come against us, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And in the name of Jesus and the power of the cross, we can resist the devil and he will flee. And when we engage with death, which is still a physical reality, we do it with no fear. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve a momentary loss, a separation, but not with desperation. We know Those who die in the Lord are raised again. And we give our lives to the kingdom of God without fear. If you don't fear death, then you give everything to the kingdom of God, even your life, to be part of the great rescue mission of Jesus, battling sin, death, and the devil even dying so that many may be set free by the cross. And where we see as the church the destruction of death, we give our lives to bring resurrection. Where we see the destruction of sin, we give our lives to bring freedom. And where we see the work of the devil, we give our lives to bring Jesus. And when we face sin, we do it with the knowledge that the Spirit of God gives us strength to struggle with sin. The Spirit of God gives you strength in the struggle with sin. In chapter 8 of Romans, Paul says, if Christ is in you, the Spirit of life is in you. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you, and He will give life to you. 
We struggle with sin, but where before we had no hope of overcoming our chains. We had no hope in ourselves, in our slavery to sin. With the spirit of Jesus living in you, you have the power to obey. You have the power to not be slaves to sin. When our Bishop Stewart talks about revival, he talks about the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming the power of sin in our life. Not that sin is completely eliminated in this life, but that its power can be broken. And then we can walk deeper and deeper into freedom to obey Jesus. And when we do sin, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. For the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. Because Jesus has defeated sin, we have freedom now in the power of the Spirit to struggle together against our chains. In the power of the cross to find freedom. Freedom when we fall in our struggle to confess and freedom to overcome. You are no longer defined by your chains. You are defined by the cross of Jesus. Your chains can be your past, but they are not your future. You are not your sin. You are not your chains by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the end, the conflict will be finally and fully consummated. It will be completely won. In the end, the devil, death, and sin will be defeated. Once and for all, they will be gone. We wrestle with them now in the name of Jesus. But on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is King, that he is victor. The devil will be cast out. Death will be no more. And now you and I can already begin to become our true selves that will be set free from sin. You will one day be fully set free from sin, fully set free from death, fully free from the devil. That is your true self, your true identity. Our future reality is not chains of sin, not the misery of death. It's not the slavery of the devil. Our future is being fully alive to God in Christ Jesus. Some of you need your imaginations opened up to what you will be like fully free from sin. Fully free from your chains. In Jesus, it will happen for those baptized in his death and resurrection. Tonight, we glory in the victory of the cross of Jesus Christ. We lift high the victory of the cross of Jesus. Come to the cross. Come to the cross where Jesus won a victory for you. Out of his love for you. Bring your sins. Bring your wounds, bring your burdens, bring your shame. Bring what you have done, what you have left undone, 
what has been done against you. Bring your sickness, bring your need, bring yourself to the cross and believe in the power of Jesus's victory. There is nothing more powerful in the world or the world to come than the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross has the power to break the chains of systems of sin in our world. The cross has the power to break the chains of abuse that you've experienced. The cross has the power to break the chains of curses in generations of your family. The cross has the power to break the chains of demonic strongholds in your life. The cross has the power to break the chains of unfaithfulness in your marriage of selfishness in your parenting, of rebellion in your children, of hatred of your brothers and sisters. The cross has the power to break the patterns of sin and addiction in your soul. The cross is more powerful than drugs. It's more powerful than alcohol, than pornography, than same-sex attraction, than pride, hatred, anger, war, governments who rail against their people, sin, death, and the devil. There is nothing in this world that is more powerful than the cross of Jesus. The cross has the power to overcome sin between individuals, between nations, between races, between us and God until we are all reconciled at the foot of the cross. There is nothing in this world more powerful than the cross of Jesus. Come to the cross. Come to the cross. Come the cross where Jesus won a victory for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org. And now, may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path. Thank you.